Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today, you've joined me for part two of my great conversation with Maxine Beniva-Clark. Now, if you've missed part one and you want to get a proper introduction and to be perfectly honest here, a very special reading of one of the poems from Maxine's new collection, How Decent Folk Behave, go back. It's going to be the previous episode in whatever podcast app you are listening. Then come back and join me here for part two, where we get deeper into the collection and explore more of Maxine's poetry. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling, and that helps you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. These are unceded lands, and treaty has never been made with Australia's First Nations. Maxine Beniba-Clark is an author of short fiction, non-fiction, and poetry. She won the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Poetry in 2017 for her collection Carrying the World. Her short story collection, Foreign Soil, masterfully captures voices from marginalised communities, and it won the Arbia Award for Literary Fiction Book of the Year and the Indie Book Award for Debut Fiction, both in 2015. Maxine has a new collection of poetry. It's called How Decent Folk Behave, and it once again highlights her incredible ear for voices and her ability to tell stories with empathy and insight. I was excited when I shared part one with you. I'm even more excited for part two. We're going to go deeper into the themes and discuss more of the poems. Join me as we discover Maxine Beniba-Clark's How Decent Folk Behave. Another poem that really, really got me was Rain and the exchange between a couple um, observed by their child where they're, they're standing in the ashes of their burnt home. So this is dealing with, with the fires. Um, and the lines, he said, these fires, they make runways of the landscape scars we settlers made. Mum snapped, oh, don't start that nonsense. We just needed bloody rain. And there's a truth to both of these perspectives, but I marvelled at how you were able to bring in and acknowledge this impact, the impact of development, the impact of colonisation, like the idea that these are still important things, even if we are dealing with this incredibly personal, incredibly devastating trauma um, I did also notice the the motif of fire. It featured across many of the poems. What what did it represent to you through the collection? Yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> I mean, the first one that strikes me is actually that you know that meme <laughs> with the dog, the dog with yeah, coffee, just with flames burning. <laughs> I mean, that's not what was on my mind, but that kind of is what came to me when you asked that question. Yeah, I think when I started this this collection was after the bushfires, you know, the mm. devastating bushfires that, um, in Australia and, and seeing them happen around the world. And it seems like a motif for this moment in time. Mm. You know, it's kind of like everything is burning. It's, a, it's an absolute pressure point for the climate, for, you know, healthcare, for, um, and, and, yeah, I mean, Yeah, it just feels like, um, yeah, a moment in time that is heated. Mm. You know? 
I got the sense though that there was this this vacillation between the destructive power, but then also the way um, the way fire or or it sort of maybe a more internal fire, the way it can spread, the way it can represent a heat and energy, and again just the way you you let us see the two voices. I mean, I I, I just love that that couple talking to each other, and and he he wants to make a point. He wants to say despite everything that's happening to us, we do also have to have a mind on the, the world we live in and that there were there was destruction, there was damage done before us. We're a part of that. And the, the mum was just like, don't start that nonsense. We don't, I don't need this right now. This is about the rain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, just so incredible. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I think that poem was rare in that, and it's funny because I don't usually write work for kids. And since I wrote that poem, I've actually started working on a book of poetry for kind of upper primary school slash lower high school yeah. age kids. It's very rare for me to write in the voice of a child. Mm. Um, and, yeah, when I, I guess conceived of that poem, I wanted to write about a family whose homes had been destroyed because that's what was 24-hour news cycle, just this grief mm. of everything we own is gone. Um, but it's kind of, yeah, how do you have that discussion about, yes, there's grief, but why has this happened and do we need to engage with, you know, this colonial process of what's happened to the country and the land and the people? And, yeah, the best way to do that was, okay, who, who would be the best observer to observe it without actually engaging with the conversation because, you know, sometimes I feel like it's that tricky tightrope of I want to raise this, but I just want to let it sit with people. You know, I don't want to moralise it. (laughs) I just want there to be this kind of drop of two opposing views and that reader almost becomes the child watching their parents arguing and going, okay, do I, who do I agree with almost? Um, and, yeah, and also I guess in that sense the fire is almost a, a personification of a rift in this marriage of two very different people mm. that is kind of signified by, you know, a couple of things in the poem and then kind of at the end by those two opposing views. And also I guess, you know, in you use, using that word marriage, I immediately thought or the, the marriage of the ideas. In society at large, I mean, we don't, as a society, we hold these diverging views that sometimes never feel like they can come together. And as a society, like, we don't really have the choice of, you know, divorce and mm-hmm. then one of us goes and lives in a one-bedroom apartment type of deal. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we, are ve- we, we should be very invested in being able to, to sit with both of those perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk there about like you've you've got this idea for a, a book of poetry for younger readers, and your work spans, I guess, readership. Um, I'm I'm very much a person who feels like you know kids' books should be read by adults, and for curious for curious minds of any age, they should be able to engage with whatever literature they want. But what puts you in a space to want to write, or how do you how do you conceptualize a work for a different age group or a different readership? That's a really great question. And, um, you know, even I guess when I write for kids, all of my kids' books are poems. Um, so they're all kind of rhyming or even if they're imperfect rhymes um, and have a meter to them. And so, you know, there's this strange thing where when you put something in a picture book, 
to a bookseller or even a book buyer, an adult book buyer, you wouldn't necessarily give that to a child over, say, about eight at the oldest. Just because, you know, at that age, kids want to be, you know, they want to be seen to be reading chapter books and they want to be big kid readers Mm. and, you know, that kind of thing. Yet if you took the the images out of these books and put them on the page, um, you know, sometimes I'll go into primary school talks with my kids' class and I'll use a poem with a grade five class that's effectively a picture book that's sold for five or six-year-olds, mm. but it's it's a poem that's actually quite sophisticated and it's using, you know, literation and assonance and all the things they're learning about. And so I think that's what actually started me thinking about, you know, maybe I should actually both take the picture books that I've written and put them in a book of poetry for kids and write some stuff that's um, for those kids. And it's interesting, yeah, that kids already have that perception that you're talking about. Mm. Of, you know, this is a book for little kids kind of thing, even though if it was just on a piece of A4 paper, they would quite happily read it and engage with it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I think before I started writing picture books myself, I had that opinion as well mm. that I'd kind of, you know, I wouldn't as an adult go and browse the picture book session, session unless I'm buying for my kids or someone else's um, so, yeah, to me, work is just work. Yeah. And it's yeah. just about how to adjust it um, if I'm thinking about, if I want it to go to a particular age group, how do I, what adjustments do I make for that to happen? It feels like, also, you know, that um, that sort of strange separation between kids can read comics, adults read graphic novels, and yeah. Um, yeah, kids, kids can watch cartoons and adults will watch animated series. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> And again, like I, I think to my work and when I'm trying to talk literacy um, with families, you talk about sort of modelling literacy by through reading um, and, you know, invariably the examples you give are like, you know, parents reading the newspaper. So the kids, and it's just like, why can't yeah. they read a picture book? Picture books yeah. are just chef kiss. Um, <laughs> I am- weirdly enough, like the thing I love about picture books is when I started making them, I thought – for most, I'd say most kids, that picture book is the only art that you engage with on a, on a daily basis. You know, it's very rare that you take a five-year-old to a museum or, you know, something, you know, an art gallery, I mean, or something mm. like that. And so, yeah, that idea, once I started illustrating myself was, you know, why does this have to be essentially... Um, you know, can I think about what adults would like, you know, what I would like if I opened a picture book in terms of the images and the level of sophistication of the artwork and the materials used and things like that, instead of kind of going, well, this line is about a kid on a swing, so I'll draw a kid happy on a swing. You know, maybe I can draw the feeling of being on a swing in abstract, (laughs) you know, those kinds of things that I like to play with that my publishers no doubt hate because it makes a book less commercial, but... Those oh. things fascinate me. <laughs> On just just the hugest of divergences, but um, yeah. So conversation that my wife and I are constantly having because she is she's a teacher. She's an early childhood teacher, um, mm. and my work, which I keep perif- peripherally alluding to, but I work. I'm a speech pathologist, and we're always talking about sort of ideas of embodied learning and the way you know children learn through different modalities. And particularly for me, I, I have meet a lot of children who have more difficulty with receptive language based um, work. And embodied learning, and, and part of that is the physicality of it, looking at and creating art is is a way for them to be engaging with ideas. And it's just, yeah, just incredible. I, um, 
you had me thinking also um, in a poem that I want to speak about in a minute, Fire Moves Faster, where you you talked about the first um, going through 2020, the first of the Jabwarong trees being um, mm. cut down and a moment that uh, a couple of years ago that my wife had where they were talking in the preschool class about the Jabwarong trees and they were engaging with them through art. So they were, they were looking at them, painting pictures mm-hmm. of them, and they collectively, they were talking to the class about what was happening and they wrote a letter that they wanted to send to their, their local member just about the situation. Yeah. And, and um, they had backlash from parents who felt that the situation was unnecessarily politicising the children and that all the children were doing was engaging with art mm. and talking about the ideas that arose from that. And, I mean, mm. it's, it's fascinating. We, we know so much about the way children learn and the, the way their brains develop and we put these artificial breaks on it. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like an incredible exercise, you know, both in terms of, um, you know, art and action, you know, and the fact that the things that we, you know, that that's art is a beautiful way for things to, be, for people to become invested in something. You know, it's kind of once you've drawn something and you've thought about it as a concept and as a living thing, of course, you'd want to write a letter to try and save it. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, kids engaging with, you know, particularly in a COVID world, um, you know, we, we can't take our kids out. So books and art, that's actually the way that they're tapping into all kinds of bits of knowledge about the world. Mm. And, you know, the broader that experience is of that, you know, art or literature or whatever, you know, the, the more they'll know and engage with. As, um, I mean, in the space we are, you know, having this conversation, it feels like a given that art is a way that we interpret and in turn talk about the world. But it's not everyone's. It's not everyone's uh, natural language. How do you feel when you tune in to, I don't know, RN or watch questions? I'm thinking specifically about the kind of anarchic lyricism of the double speak of politicians. Like there is something to it. Like I don't think I could spend 10 minutes constantly talking and not say anything. Um, do you, do you have a kind of begrudging respect for their ability to do that? Or does it frustrate you as a wordsmith? (laughs) Listen, I mean, I think, you know, as, as anti-politician as I am, Politicians are very artful with words. Um, you know, in my former, when I was at university, I studied law as well as creative writing. Um, and I never worked as a barrister or solicitor or anything like that, but I did for a while kind of policy, social justice type work before I went to writing full time. And I remember when I was studying, it was a double degree, and my poetry lecturers would just be fascinated and say, how can you go over there and do a contract law class or whatever and then come over here and do a poetry class? And I was saying, essentially, they're teaching us the same things about language, Mm -hmm. you know, that language is persuasive. And, you know, when you're in a politician or a lawyer and you're wanting to get something across, you're choosing the way that you present it to people Mm -hmm. and how that tweaks people's emotions. And, you know, this is something that I partly talk about, kind of allude to in some of the poems. There's a poem poem there that's, I think it's called David, that's about the union movement, Mm. Um, you know, where I use this term union 
thugs and you know what does that mean the minute you say union thug it all all of this kind of imagery of kind of you know burly men being physical bullies kind of comes up um and yeah so to me it's almost being a poet it's like we need more poets to counter (laughs) we're using the same superpowers but they're using it for evil Mm. (laughs) the writers are hopefully using it for good and and they hide behind this idea that they are somehow speaking a truth. They, yeah, that's the thing. This this yeah, this falsity that it's a it's a um, this is this is neutral language. Um, you know, even things like you know words like illegal immigrants and you know policies. You know, if you come to this country, you won't be settled settled in Australia. You know, those slogans and those kinds of things. Um, you know, they're a way of using words that is, yeah, that tweaks the emotions and that is divisive. I guess as a, as a poet, as a writer, I am wary of not doing the opposite. You know, so it's like there's always that sense of there is another view and here it is. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, balance in some ways is a falsity. You know, there are some subjects on which there's just science and facts, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I find it, um, like, I remember during during the, the, I think, the second wave in Melbourne, I was watching the morning news and there was a CEO of some company, I think it was a flight centre, and he used the word right size instead of downsizing. And it was the first time I've ever, I think, I feel like he probably invented that word at that moment in time. And then I saw it a couple times after that, it kind of fell into the lexicon and other corporates started using this word. And every now and then I hear a word like that and I think, whoa, that is a total manipulation of the language, of the situation. And it's, to me, it's fascinating, but just it's a horror Mm. of going, wow, you've just evolved language to completely suit your agenda um, and, and in doing so changed a word. And and brought us along with the idea that they are completely naive in doing it and therefore it, it has a truth because it was mm. never manipulated. It was just a, a, a part of the way the world was meant to land on that day. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um. And so what we're talking about here is is making sense and the way words can help make sense. And one thing, I feel like we're, we've only just begun to see how art will help us process the year that has been, the ongoing impact of COVID. And Fire Moves Faster is, is an epic of 2020. Um, how did this work come about? Did it, was it the work of a year? Were, was it an evolving process or... Or did you? Could you just sit down and somehow make sense of it in your head? And if so, please tell us your secret. Mm. <laughs> so this work came about. Um, some of the po- poems in the book were written when I was working for the Saturday paper, and I was writing poetry on current events. Um, and I stopped doing that for. I think I did that on and off for a year and then kind of stopped doing that. And then the next year they contacted me and said, can you write a, I think it was supposed to be a prose article that was the year that was, you know, at the end of the year in the last edition, they always have this 2020, the year that was. So it's supposed to be an actual, almost like an opinion article musing on the year that was. And when I sat down 
And, you know, the process was mapping out, okay, there's been the fires and there's been the pandemics and there's been the Black Lives Matter protests and mm. thinking about all the press conferences and in Victoria that, you know, Daniel Andrews in his North Bay. And I just thought, this is an epic poem. There is no way in a kind of 1800 word space to write this in prose in and include all of those really powerful, you know, there've been so many mammoth climates climate change events, tsunamis and, you know, hurricanes and tornadoes. And so, yeah, it became a poem once I mapped out the events. And it was it's funny because it wasn't commissioned as a poem. Mm. I just delivered it as this sprawling broadsheet spread of a poem, thinking, please don't make me change this into prose. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Yeah. Did it help you? Were you – did you have any sense of the year that was – when you'd completed it or did you have a sense that completing it showed you that it was still a work in process in your mind? Oh, I think to me it really helped me process the year. And I mean, I thought I was putting the year to bed (laughs) as it happened. I feel like a lot of, I mean, I feel like 2021 has been very different in tone You know, even though a lot of those issues obviously have continued on in terms of still existing in our lives and driving our lives, but I really feel like 2020 was just this trash fire of a year, you know, with glimmers of hope in it. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, it helped to me to, when I finished it, I thought, you know, it was kind of, I can put this to bed now. You know, even if the next year is just as bad, it was a, you know, kind of I've worked through it, I can put it to bed and hopefully other people reading it will have that sense of, you know, and it was strange because, you know, the last poem in the suite of poems is quite hopeful um, and I I didn't know I was going to put that last poem on the end. Mm. That initial mapping out of what's happened throughout the year didn't really have an end to it. And I did think, you know, we're still here. You know, we're still here minus a lot of people, but we've survived and we've evolved and a lot of things have come to prominence that needed to come to prominence. There was this sense of something has come out of it. You know, a lot of bad things have happened, but something positive has come out of it. I think think one thing that you showed me was... Well, firstly, I think one thing that people seem to be craving in, in a world that constantly is throwing things at us is some sort of simplicity... And I think it's it's just such a, a damn shame that the way some people are manifesting their simplicity is is joining cliques and little internet clans where they can hurl insults and it doesn't you know it doesn't matter if you're on Team Gladys or Team Dan or if mm-hmm. you think Mark mm-hmm. McGowan's a zaddy you know like you are going to dig your heels in and your simple position is I will this is the hill I die on and yeah. you in fire moves faster you've shown us that complexity and. And let us be okay with it because it would be nice if things were simple. And we see this throughout literature. You know, people have turned back to comfort literature and, you know, the golden the golden age detective novels that showed us, you know, quaint country house murders, which it's somehow okay that someone's dead because we're in a nice house and there's a yeah. Belgian here. Yeah. Um, and that we need to be we need to become okay with the complexity. And Fire Moves Faster does some of that for us. Mm, I'm I'm glad that it has that impact. I think, yeah, when I was writing the poem, as I said, it was just kind of looking at mm. the year that was. Um, 
And, you know, it did seem to be ups and downs. You know, I do talk about, you know, in the section where I talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, I remember, you know, when the Jub Warrell tree was cut down in, in Melbourne and it was such a covert, you know, there was these protests all over the world. This was on the agenda. And then it was just someone just tweeted saying that the tree's been cut down. It was such a quiet covert. We'll just slide in as this lockdown's lifting and everyone's looking the other way. And so there were so many ups and downs in that journey in the poem of going, this was incredible. Everyone came together and realised it was an issue. But, um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a you know, Oh, humans are beautiful and awful and complex. <laughs> and and this is this is why we are leaning on on you, or I'm leaning on you right now, because you have done some of the work to help make sense of that, um, Maxine. Like I always, it, it's almost become a cliche of my interviews around collections, whether it be poetry or short stories, that. There is a there is a full interview in every single piece of work. We've we've called on quite a few of the poems in the collection. Is there any are there any that you would like to you know call out or or highlight before we before we say goodbye today? Oh, I think you've done a fabulous job. <laughs> Thank you. Such great questions and yeah, we've covered a lot. Um no, I mean, I think I just hope people sink into it and take from it what they can and leave what they can't and hopefully fall in love with poetry in some way. I, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep trying to take away what initially sort of devastated me in something sure. This idea that despite your trepidation and I think as a, when you're a lover of poetry, you always wonder, will someone else want to listen if I say, Hey, can I read you something? Mm. Um, despite your trepidation, despite wondering, will my voice be welcome in this space that we do, you know, in something sure you, you show us, you tell us as men, we have a responsibility to speak up. And I think, you know, we could do worse than to share some of the poems in this collection with people. So that's, that's, that's my takeaway. And I thank you for giving me that opportunity. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I am speaking. I'm just going to do a little bit of an outro, Maxine. (laughs) Maxine Benaber-Clark is joining me on the show today and we are discussing her collection, How Decent Folk Behave. It is an extraordinary collection and our conversation should be an introduction and you should definitely go out and get a copy. Maxine, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for sharing your poetry with us. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for your brilliant questions. Mm That's it for part two of my conversation with Maxine Benieber-Clark. Thank you so much to Maxine for this wonderful chat. I love it when the conversations go for so long, I have to break it up into two parts and it's always a pleasure to be sharing them with you. Maxine's new poetry collection is How Decent Folk Behave. It's out now from Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can email me. Email me uh, finaldraft at 2ser.com or go to 2ser.com forward slash finaldraft and catch up on everything that's happening with the show. And, of course, wherever you are listening, if you subscribe, there will be a new great conversation every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And till then, I hope whatever you're reading that you're having a good time with it. Thank you. Bye now.